as John identifies himself once again in chapter one, he says, I, John, and we've determined that that is in all likelihood the apostle John who wrote first, second, and third John and the gospel of John. He says, I, John, your brother. John could have introduced himself in a number of different ways. He could have said, I, John, the beloved apostle. I, John, the one who used to lean on the chest of Jesus. I, John, one of the inner circle of the twelve, the inner circle of the inner circle. But he doesn't do that. He introduces himself very humbly. He says, I, John, your brother. The church is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. No matter what our position may be in life or in the church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Here is one of the grand apostles of all time introducing himself simply as your brother. He also says, I'm a fellow partaker. This word is a, a word that is connected to koinonia. It's su koinonanas or koinononas. And it is a fellow partaker or a brother in common tribulation. You know, uh, the church has always talked about the idea of koinonia. And koinonia is much more than cookies and punch and coffee, although we all enjoy that. And we call it a time of koinonia when we finish but our koinonia is not really about the food as much as I enjoy the oatmeal raisins that are normally delivered to me because <laughs> I'm usually up talking to somebody. And those people do get an extra blessing in heaven, just so you know. But, um, but it's really about the conversation. It's about the family relationships and ties and the beauty of the body of Christ. John says, I'm your brother and I'm a fellow partaker Notice, in the tribulation, if you are interested in this word, tribulation, and the Greek word for it, and I think it's an important word for you to understand tonight, and all of us to understand, it's the word thlipsis. So here it is, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. You've probably heard me give you the word before, but if you're newer to this kind of study, the word is thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. The word in the ancient world meant pressure or trouble. It has the idea of going through a narrow space, whether it could be spiritually, emotionally, or physically, going through pressure or trouble or trial. The word in the book of Revelation actually comes up just a few times. If you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 9, as Jesus speaks to the churches, he's addressing Smyrna, and he says, I know your tribulation." Uh, look at verse 10. He says, uh, uh, 2 9, I know your tribulation. And then 2 10, he says, uh, that you may be tested, middle of the verse, you will have tribulation 10 days. So there's that word again, flipsis. If you look at 2 22, behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Flipsis again. And one more time, and the only other time I know of in the book of Revelation that the word is used, 7.14, skip ahead, chapter 7, verse 14, the great chapter where John is interacting with this one who um, is dealing with him on the, uh, the subject matter of the 144,000 and those who show up after that. And I said to him, 7.14, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So you'll note that in each case, when tribulation is used in the book of Revelation, it always pertains to the church, always. There's not one of the references that I just gave you that doesn't have a direct reference to the church. Tribulation. Jesus said, in this world, John 16, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We've joked before, I guess it's not a joking matter, but I'm sure it's not a promise verse that most of us put on the refrigerator or in the little promise box as we go out to our week. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the verse of the day. Great? How's that sound? Send it to somebody else. Don't make it your own, but send it to somebody else. <laughs> Just kidding, don't do that. But look, it's a promise, right? In Matthew 24, this, this word is also found there, Matthew 24, and you all know this is the famous Olivet Discourse, which goes hand in hand with Revelation 6. When we get there, we'll be going back and forth, but in, in Matthew 24, Jesus is preaching, 
and answering the question about the end of the age, the disciples had asked him, and he says these words, 24.9 of Matthew. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Direct reference to the apostles who did go through tribulation. 11 of the 12 apostles die a martyr's death. There's a, there's a tradition about John and people give it different weight about him being put in a pot of boiling oil and he didn't die. And uh, then he was banished to this island of Patmos, which we'll get to tonight. But anyway, um, in this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, right before he's going to die for them in the upper room discourse, he says that. Matthew 24, last week of his life, end times kind of teaching, also applying to the apostles, you're going to have tribulation. Flip over to the book of Acts. As the early church goes out, Acts 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 11. I want to show this to you uh, in one other spot. Acts 11, uh, look at verse 19. Acts eleven nineteen. I checked all the major versions and uh, here's how it reads. So then those, Acts eleven nineteen, who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. See the word persecution in Acts eleven nineteen. That is the word Flipsis. So the word can mean trouble, pressure, or persecution. English versions of your Bible, of your New Testament, render it trouble, persecution, pressure, uh, that kind of thing. So, tribulation. So here we go back to Revelation chapter 1. And I spent some time with that because I'm sure you've all heard this idea of the tribulation period. Or the great tribulation. What is that? And who is it for? Well, as we go through the book, I'm going to make an argument that there's a distinction between wrath and tribulation. Wrath is God's judgment on the world. Tribulation is typically the world's judgment on the church. Let me say that one more time. Wrath is God's judgment on the world. Tribulation is typically man's wrath or Satan's wrath towards the people of God. And so that's how it shows up. Now, sometimes God is behind allowing people to go into tribulation, and we'll dig that out when we get to chapter 2. But John is saying, I'm your fellow partaker in the tribulation. And John was going through his own tribulation, as we'll see. He is on some sort of Alcatraz or correctional island or a penalty island. And he says, I'm your fellow brother, chapter 1, verse 9, back in Revelation. In the tribulation, I'm your fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom, back to chapter 1, verse 6, we're a kingdom of priests. And perseverance, these three seem to go together in the Greek. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was on the island and going through his own tribulation, a brother in tribulation, not because he had done something wrong, rather because he had done something right. And sometimes when we're going through tribulation, probably most often we say, what have I done to deserve this? But oftentimes, if you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you haven't done anything wrong. You've done right. In fact, John is on this, what scholars call penal island. He's on some sort of island where he's probably having to do physical labor and he's imprisoned in some sense because, verse 9, end of the verse, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ or Jesus. John would not back down. He would not be quiet. And that's why he was banished to this island. And we're not to back down and be quiet either. We're to be wise about how we behave and we're to be winsome. We're to be biblically, um, we're to be, uh, bring biblical clarity to people with compassion. Biblical clarity with compassion. And sometimes we have to exhort and sometimes we have to beg and plead with people, but that's what John did. He spread the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, and, and he was banished for this, uh, this purpose. He was in sore trouble. 
is the idea of the Greek word for tribulation. He was on the island of Patmos. And perseverance, note in, the, in verse 9, is in Jesus. Jesus gives perseverance. What was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Write down Romans 15, verses 4 and 5. Paul, when he writes from a prison situation to the Philippians, says, I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens me. Perseverance comes from Jesus Christ. He gives perseverance. You might say, well, how does he give it? Often through the word of God, through a promise, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through a good word from a friend, through a moment of prayer or time spent in prayer. And John was a privileged man, uh, no doubt. He walked with Jesus. He saw truth incarnate, love incarnate. He saw him do miracles. He saw all this incredible stuff. And yet his life was filled with trouble. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. And John was certainly living out trouble. And he's an old man at this point on an island called Patmos. You say, what is that, Pastor Michael? What's that island? It's a small island, rocky and forbidding in its terrain. It's about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, located in the Aegean Sea, southwest of Ephesus, just beyond the island of Samos. In addition to its significance for navigation between Ephesus and Rome, it may have served as a penal settlement to which Roman authorities sent offenders. John says he is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Tertullian, an early church father, said about John being exiled to Patmos by Domitian, which bears on our date of the book. He says, quote, After no hurt from being plunged into boiling oil, John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, state that John was sent to this island as an exile under the reign of Domitian the emperor, between 81 and 96 AD, he reigned. According to Victorinus, John, though aged, was forced to labor in the mines located at Patmos. And early sources indicate that about AD 96, when Domitian died, John was allowed to return to Ephesus when the emperor Nerva was in power. So that's a little bit of the history that we have based upon um, these uh, these settings. Verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Just take note that John mentions this several times. Skip ahead, I'll just show you one of them. John, uh, excuse me, Revelation 4 2. Revelation 4 2. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Revelation 4 2. And one sitting on the throne. John will give us a view of heaven in a future study, but here, he uses this phrase again, I was in the Spirit. He'll also use it in 17.3 and 21.10 of Revelation. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? There are many Bible commentators that believe that this is something like a trance state, almost like Peter when he is up on the roof in Acts 10 and 11, and he falls into like a trance and he sees a sheet coming down from heaven. Remember, with all those different types of animals, and so um, they say it's a deep spiritual communion with God. Uh, some people say it's an attitude of worship, but I think it's more than that. Uh, have you ever just recognized, just a, a practical point on this, that when you're in, in an attitude of worship, you're a different person? Amen? Amen? Now, it seems like when you're in an attitude of worship and you, you have beautiful communion with God, you want to stay there and never leave. <laughs> but you have to go home. We lock the doors at some point. We usually say to the last stragglers on Wednesday night, don't you people have homes? <laughs> totally said in love. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't usually say that. I say it on the inside. I don't say it out loud. But <laughs> usually Kurt's saying that because he's the last one to leave. <laughs> so it's some sort of deep spiritual communion with God and this is an idea that comes up in Acts 10 with Peter, Acts uh, twenty-two seventeen with Paul. He says, uh, and I saw him saying to me, Acts twenty-two eighteen. this is, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And he says, when I, uh, he, when I came, it came about when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, Acts twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit of God was in control of John 
as he sees the revelation. John becomes a seer. I think that this is deeper than just simply an attitude of worship. This is the idea of a man receiving direct revelation from God. So I would say it's beyond just, you know, an attitude of worship. But it's something that there's a deep communion going on between the receiver of the revelation and God Almighty. As John says, I was in the Spirit, he says it was on the Lord's Day. There's two major interpretations there. One is that the Lord's Day is simply Sunday, the Lord's Day. There are people who say that the early church did not use Sunday in this way, but there are early church fathers that called Sunday the Lord's Day. I don't know if you guys say that, that it's the Lord's Day. We like to say every day is the Lord's Day. But Sunday did become the day of worship for the early church. And it was a day in the not-so-recent past when businesses were shut down, when barely anything was open, when baseball leagues did not play on Sunday, (laughs) soccer leagues did not play on Sunday. If you played Little League, you played all your games on Saturday. If you played All-Stars, you played on Saturday. You did not play on Sunday. Because the idea of the nation was most people went to church. I could spend the next half an hour talking about that, but I'm not going to go there. It's the Lord's Day. It's not your day. It's the Lord's Day. So we should spend time going to church. Sometimes people, I ask people this question. Why do you go to church? All different answers. Well, because I should. Some of you... Between the ages of 2 and 20, I was dragged there. <laughs> praise, praise the Lord. I think that's awesome. You should go to church to honor Jesus Christ. Not because you like the music. Not because the chairs are cushy. Not because the preacher is short-winded. <laughs> because none of you come here for those reasons, right? You know it's going to be long, and yet you endure it. Perseverance on Arsenal Way in Corona. That's the street that the church is on. Anyway, it's the Lord's Day. Can I tell you, young people, when you're going to marry somebody, make a declaration that if you're in town and not sick, and I even give space for occasional hooky days to the beach, because we're not under the law, we're under grace, go to church. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what anybody else is doing. I'm going to honor the one who bought me with his blood. And plus, I have to be here. (laughs) So I want you to be here too. I'm just kidding. When I wasn't preaching every week, I still showed up. I was the drummer on the worship team back then. No idea what they were thinking, but anyway. Yes. And I heard behind me, verse 10, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And if you're taking notes, write down Exodus 19, 16, 19, and 20, where the sound of Yahweh's voice on Sinai is like the sound of a shofar or a sound of a trumpet. Loud, piercing, powerful. That's what I heard. I turned around. He says, I heard behind me. First, he describes the sound And it was a voice. Notice it's a voice, but the voice was like the sound of a trumpet. It's the sound of power and majesty. By the way, the second view on the Lord's Day is that many people believe that it's not a reference to Sunday, but to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. We'll talk about this. It's the day when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. But the context seems to be better Sunday. Although other people say, It could be the day of the Lord because the book is so filled with day of the Lord kind of stuff. But anyway, um, so he says, I heard this voice, this powerful voice, verse 10, and it was like the sound of the trumpet. And here's what the voice said to me, verse 11. It said, saying, write, the Greek word is grapson. In a book, the Greek word is biblion. By the way, when you see holy Bible, that simply means holy book. Bible is just the word for book. It's biblion in Greek. But this is the holy book because it is inspired by God. And by the way, there's none other. 
But there are 66 books contained within this book, and they're all inspired by God. But he says, write. And Moses was commanded to write some things. You could write down Exodus 17, 14, Exodus 34, 4 through 8, and 27 and 28, where Moses wrote things down and others did as well. Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'll show you some things in a second. But he's told to write in a book what you see. Verse 11, write what you see. The book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's a vision of what John saw. So the seer or the prophet writes what he sees. He writes down what he sees. Just like in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel will do that very thing. And that's what John is called to do. He's called to be a seer and he's to write down what he sees and send it to these seven churches, which we looked at last week, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're not all the churches in Asia Minor, but they may have been on a postal route. And as I showed you the map last week, they seem to follow a logical uh, route in that sense. If you have a New King James, there's a variant reading. It says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see right in a book. So there's a difference in the manuscripts here. If you have the New King James, it's uh, one, one type of reading and, and the other one doesn't have it. The oldest manuscripts do not have this repetition of Alpha and Omega, first and last. I'll let you make up your mind. I'm not going to spend time on that right now. But just by the way, even though the number seven is highly symbolic in the book, these are literal historical churches. There was a church at Ephesus. There was a church at Smyrna. There was a church at Pergamum. There was a church at Thyatira. They are literal churches back in the day. So the book of Revelation is not all futuristic. It could have future implications to the modern church, but these churches were historical. And so they are going to receive revelation from God. I want to get, just show you really quick the idea of the seer. Go to Isaiah. Lots of the book of Revelation comes from ideas in Isaiah or allusions to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. It's kind of the, past the middle of the Old Testament. Isaiah 1 verse 1. Isaiah 1 verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 1, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if you just caught up, it's the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah, Jerusalem, which he saw during these reigns. Then he says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Go to chapter 2, verse 1 of Isaiah. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, and then it, now he's going to go into what we believe is the millennial reign of Christ. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief, as the chief of mountains, and so forth. This is what he saw. The prophet is writing down a revelation in a book. Go to chapter 6, look at verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, what does he say? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. When we get to Revelation 4, there's going to be great similarity between Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. What did Isaiah see? A vision of the Lord. What does John see in John chapter 1? A vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord. Write in a book what you see. You know, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters, interestingly enough. And it's filled with these incredible revelations of God and prophecies about the coming uh, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so these, these thoughts or these uh, visions, go back to Revelation 1, are going to be sent to these churches. And they've arrived to the church over the history of the known world because they've been included in what we call the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. The book of Revelation is the final book. And so... As Jesus addresses the churches, he'll talk to them in chapters 2 and 3 about their strengths and weaknesses. The seven churches are characteristic of individual churches throughout church history, but they are not church ages in my view. You have somebody, some people say, well, each church represents an age of church history. I don't think that you can really make a case for that. 
uh, from church history. But I think what you can say is that these seven churches are historical, but they also have characteristics of the church throughout the age. If I were to ask you tonight, if Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Corona and said, this I commend you for, this you're doing well, and this I have against you. If you were to take a piece of paper tonight and say, to the church of Corona, write. This is what the Alpha and the Omega says. This is what the, the one who holds the, the churches in his hand says. I say to you, this you're doing well, and this I have against you. What do you think he'd say to the church in Corona? I'm not talking about this church alone. We would include this church, but the church in Corona, which, by the way, is not seven buildings. It's a group of individuals that meet at many different locations. But what do you think the Lord of the church would say to the church in Corona tonight? What would he commend us for? And what would he say, I have this against you? Interesting thought, isn't it? Because we can observe the book of Revelation from the stands and say, Oh, hmm, interesting. Wow, yeah. Or we can say, Lord, what do you have to say to me tonight? What am I doing well in your view? Because that's all that really matters. And what do I need to improve? Verse 12, Revelation 1. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw, first thing he sees now, I saw seven golden lampstands. The first image that John sees is seven golden lampstands. Now, a lot of you are familiar with the idea of a lampstand or in the Jewish temple, there was a menorah and it was a single stand, but then it had seven places for uh, wicks and fire and so forth. It was kind of like a candelabra. There were 10 lampstands, by the way, later in the Solomonic temple. But in the original tabernacle, what you had is a multi-branched, seven-branched lampstand. Is that what this is referring to? You can write down Exodus 25 and 37, where Moses is given instructions about the lampstand. By the way, if you go to Israel with us, and a lot of you are, we're going to see that the Temple Institute has constructed the menorah that will go in the future temple. It's done. It's complete. They already have it. In fact, I think they have all the implements of the temple now completed. All they need is the temple to go up, and they've, they've made everything. They're training priests right now in Israel, so they're taking this pretty seriously that the temple's going to go up. But the primary reference is to Zechariah 4. Let's go there. Great application here, Zechariah 4. It's towards the Old Testament's end, Zechariah and then Malachi, okay? So, Ze Malachi, right? Or Malachi, Malachi, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I like Malachi. <laughs> Zechariah 4. Look at verse 1. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. Zechariah 4, 2. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side, Zechariah 4.4. 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, this is the temple, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the days of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Now the, the historical context is that Zerubbabel is in a battle to finish the temple. And God says, you're going to finish it. 
Because you're not going to do it by might, not earthly might. You're not going to do it by power, earthly power. You're going to do it by the power of my spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And can I say to you tonight, you are going to finish what God started in you, not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. Amen. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. What's the application for those receiving the book of Revelation? Oh, I think it's very clear. These seven churches and those like them, if you go back to Revelation, are suffering. They're wondering, are we going to be able to finish what we started? Are we going to recant if we're threatened with death or being banished or our family being taken away? Can I start what I finished, Lord? And the Lord's saying, just remember, this seven-branch lampstand and the historical context of it in the book of Zechariah, you will finish because I will empower you to do what I've called you to do. This reflects the purpose of the church in this sense as well. The church is supposed to be the light of the what? Of the world. And the source of that light is Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, Jesus in Revelation 1 is dressed, consensus of scholarship, not as a king, but as a high priest. And one of the jobs of the high priest or the priest in the temple was to fill the little cup holders of the seven branch menorah. When the oil got old, it would get refilled by the priest. That was his job. And if any wicks went out, he would put new wicks there and relight the ones that had gone out. You see the imagery, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ is among his church, and when our oil is low and our wicks are waning, he lights the fire again and again and again. Amen? And this is the image, beautifully tied to Zechariah 4, that our great high priest is in the midst of his church. He says, look at Revelation 2, verse 5, with a warning, though. He says, remember 2.5, therefore from where you have fallen and repent. This is the church that left their first love. We'll get to this next time. Do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you, Revelation 2.5, and will remove what? Your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What does that mean? I think it means that your influence, the light that you're supposed to shine in Ephesus is going to go out. Unless you repent. And some of us may need to hear that tonight for our own lives because we lose influence when we give in to sin. Verse 13, chapter 1. In the middle of the lampstands, where we'd expect to see the Lord, one like a son of man. Remember, we saw this description of the son of man in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So he's in the midst. He's in the middle of the lampstands. Just, just note, he's in the middle of the church. He is the church's light. We're simply reflected light. He is our light. We're like the moon. We're not like the sun. The, the moon reflects the light of the sun, and that's what the church does. He's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, or to the feet. This is a unique word in the New Testament. It does uh, apply to a priestly garment. And girded across his breast or his chest is a golden girdle. So it was the job, as I mentioned, of the Levitical priest to keep the lampstands lit. And Jesus, I would say here, is tending to his lambs. You remember when he was resurrected, he met with Peter at that fire. And he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And he says, then tend my lambs. Jesus is in the midst of the church. What is he doing? He takes care of his people. He tends to his lambs. Not always in the most comfortable way, but he does uh, tend to us. And so he's dressed in these beautiful garments. He's our great high priest. If you write down Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, his great high priestly ministry is seen there. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Uh, he, we come to a throne of grace to receive what? Mercy and help in time of need. We can come to him boldly because he loves us. This robe is a mark of distinction. If you write down Exodus 39, 29, it says the sash of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material 
the work of the, the weaver just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses is making, or the folks are making priestly garments and this is, fits well with the description. So he is in a high priestly attire. This is what he does. He is the high priest of the church. He's got you and he's got me. Amen. He hasn't moved. He's in the midst of a persecuted, troubled church that's going through tribulation. Here's a description. His head and his hair were white. Praise the Lord. All of you have white hair. You're not alone. (laughs) His head and his hair were white. The word is lukos in Greek, and it means bright, blazing, or brilliant. So it's not just simply a reference to gray or white hair. It was like white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, in Daniel 7, if you go there, and we're going to, as you've noticed, we're going to be all over the Bible when we study Revelation because there's all these references, right? Daniel 7. Go to Daniel 7. Isaiah, Isaiah Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Go to Daniel 7. Look at verse 9. Daniel 7, verse 9. It says, I kept looking, 7, 9 in Daniel, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture, Daniel 7, 9, was, was like white snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels, similar to Ezekiel chapter 1, I think, were a burning fire. A river of fire, Daniel seven ten, was flowing and coming out from before him. And notice, thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. As we see the description of Jesus Christ, we see the tie to the Son of Man, back to Revelation 1, and the tie to the Ancient of Days. Because Jesus is the Ancient of Days. Because he has no beginning and he has no end. He's been here forever From everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90, verse 2. You are God. Alpha and Omega is captured in a word called a mirrorism. And it means that when you're the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph Tav, you are the beginning, the end, and everything in between. It implies the in-between as well. And it implies control. Gray or white hair can speak of wisdom and honor. Praise the Lord. I'll quote John Ferguson when he says, I've earned every one of these gray hairs. Praise the Lord, John. Amen. I'm earning them too. They're starting to pop out here and there. And I'm giving them names now. I'm naming them for certain individuals. No, no, I'm not doing that. That would be brutal, wouldn't it? I lifted my eyes and looked at Daniel 10, 5, and 6, and behold... There was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, or Upaz. Daniel 10, 5 and 6, just write it down. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. This is when Daniel interacts with this heavenly being. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult or a multitude. Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Notice the description in Revelation 1. As John turns around, he, sa- he says, he describes uh, in 14 his head, uh, wisdom and power and authority, white, purity. His eyes, 14, like flaming fire, sees all, knows all, nothing gets past him. His feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze. Many think that speaks of judgment, holiness. When it has been caused to glow in a furnace, purity. And his voice was like the voice or the sound of Niagara Falls. It actually reads like the sound of many waters. If you've ever been somewhere where there's gushing water and it's an awesome, like it's a big day at the beach and the waves are like, you know, you can almost feel it when you stand like at the pier on the beach when the waves are really rumbling. I stand on the sand. I don't go out on the water (laughs) during those times. Just hold my board. Yeah, maybe in a a few minutes. (laughs) What do they call that? Poser? Yeah. Anyway. Pose for selfies. I was there, big wave behind you. (laughs) Anyway. 
His voice is awesome. It's like the sound of pounding surf, the sound of Niagara Falls, the sound of gushing, pounding water. This is our God. This is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light. And light said, okay. How does that work? He said to oceans, you can go no farther than that. Stop. That's raw power. Jesus said to the sea, peace, be still. And it was quiet. Who is this one that even the wind and the waves obey him? I'll tell you who he is. He's God Almighty. His voice is powerful. Oh, I gotta. Oh, I have so much I want to show you. Oh, go to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel. You gotta, you gotta go there. You just have to. <laughs> Ezekiel is just before Daniel. So you already know where it is. Ezekiel. Go to chapter 1. So Ezekiel, there's a lot of stuff in Revelation that is alluded to from Ezekiel, but let me just show you some highlights. Chapter 1, verse 26. Images of God's glory from Ezekiel. Chapter 1, verse 26. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, 126. There was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. 127. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. There was radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Go all the way to Ezekiel 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Look at verse 1. Ezekiel 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken... On that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me, Ezekiel 40, verse 2, into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. Similar to what John's going through, Ezekiel goes through. And on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I'm going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. You see the parallel? Send this to the seven churches, all that you see. Ezekiel's told, you tell this to the house of Israel. Go to chapter 43, look at verse 1. 43.1 says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. There's an eastern gate on the Temple Mount today that is closed, interestingly enough. And uh, we'll get a chance to look at it when we're up on the Temple Mount area when we go to Israel. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like what? The sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. John's going to do the same in a moment. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Man, purity, power, holiness. These prophets, even though their jobs were tough, back to Revelation 1, man, they got to see some incredible stuff. And as John turns and he's seeing who we know is Jesus Christ, he says this, after he describes his voice, his eyes, his hair, his purity, his power, he says, in his right hand, he held seven stars out of his mouth. Remember, symbolic language here. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Can you imagine? John might say, you got any 
Ray-Bans or Oakleys that I can wear? You ever go outside, you're, at a, you're in a dimly lit room and you go outside and it's bright and your eyes can barely even take like the concrete and you're like, whoa. Can you imagine? John must have had super sunglasses because his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When uh, Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's how he described Jesus. He said he, was his, he shined brighter than the noonday sun. Well, it shouldn't surprise us he made the sun. The future Jerusalem has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the, the lamb in the midst of it is its light. Those who have wisdom and knowledge will shine, Daniel 12, 3, like the stars forever and ever. He holds in his hand, in his right hand, power, authority, protection, seven stars. We'll get to that in a second. He's got a sharp two-edged sword, symbolic language, Coming out of his mouth speaks of correction and judgment. The word of God is what? Powerful. It's authoritative. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In the armor of God, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The sword is an image of cutting, cutting deep, even of defensive and offensive strength. And he's got the sharp sword. He's going to speak sharply to the churches in some cases. And of course, his word of judgment is going to come on the world. And his face, man, his face is glorious. Isaiah 49.2 says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. Speaking of Messiah, He has hidden uh, me in his quiver. This is the servant of the Lord. This is the power of God's word. And when I saw him, 17, Revelation 1, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Can you imagine John? He had spent so much time with Jesus, but when he sees Jesus in his glory, what does he do? He falls down like a dead man. We have some people in our current age who have said they saw God, they had to put their arm around the Lord and say, it's going to be okay, you'll get over it. Uh, I don't think so. If you have an encounter with Almighty God, from everything I can see in Scripture, you hit the deck and wonder why you're not dead. Samson's parents, upon seeing the angel of the Lord, were surprised that they weren't dead. And this is John. He knew Jesus. But man, this is the glorified Lord. And he laid his right hand upon me and he said, as John had heard so many times in Jesus' earthly ministry, don't be afraid. Stop fearing. I am the first and I am the last. Don't be afraid. Some of you just need to receive that for yourself tonight. He'll touch you and he'll say, don't be afraid. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I know where this train's going. I got you. I'm not going to let you go. You're in my right hand. No one's going to snatch you out of my hand. But John, as one writer put it, had to be on sensory overload, right? Wow, whoa, whoa, look at his eyes, look at his head, look at his hair, look at that. What a voice! (laughs) down <laughs> when you wouldn't you hit the carpet i'd be in a fetal position man <laughs> john was seeing some incredible stuff when isaiah saw the lord he said i am ruined i am undone i'm a man of unclean lips i live among a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the lord and they took a coal from remember from the fire and His mouth was touched. He was purified. John probably felt as impure as you can feel. Remember when Peter saw Jesus with the catch of fish and he said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. In the presence of God, when we see God for who he is and us for who we are, you don't want to look. Your eyes can't look upon him. He's too holy. That's your God. When you understand how holy 
the one is who came and died for you and loves you so much, it changes everything. Don't be afraid. I'm the living one, verse 18. He says, I was dead. There's no doubt that this is Jesus. Right after we have the description of the first and the last, then he says, I'm the living one. I was dead. That has to be Jesus. There's no doubt. Jesus is God. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He's resurrected. He'll never die again. It's impossible for death to hold him. And I, verse 18, says Jesus, have the keys of death and of Hades. We're going to see death and Hades uh, later on in the book. In fact, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. What is Hades? Well, Hades is a Greek parallel, but not exactly parallel with the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol often means the grave, but Hades really means the place of departed spirits or the place of the dead. He has the keys. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. In the ancient world, gates were not for offense, but they were for defense. That means that the church is rushing the gates of Hades, and the gates of Hades won't be able to prevail against us. We've got to be more on the offensive, not the defensive. Amen? We're going to go to a place, to mention Israel again, where people literally thought Caesarea Philippi, and there's going to be a mountain there, and we'll we'll see it when we go to Israel, was the gates of Hades. But the gates of Hades speaks of the power of life and death. Whoever has the keys holds the power. Jesus has the keys, notice, of death and of Hades. So we live in a world where we're not going to last. And we get scares, medical reports, checkups. We get phone calls. And death comes. And when you start thinking about people that you love and people that you've lost, and you say, is there an answer to this terrible dilemma of death? Man, I'm sure glad he's got the keys. You know, this is not just a book about, let's find out more about the end times. This is a book about life and death. This is a church wondering, does he have the keys? Or is the emperor? No, the emperor doesn't have the keys. Jesus says, I was dead and I'm alive. And because I live, you're going to live. Jesus is the prince of life. And so destiny will be destroyed because Jesus has the keys. And if you know him, you will live. And then verse 19, as we wind down for tonight, and we are almost done. What people say is a common kind of uh, division of the book. It's, it's a way to say an outline for the rest of the way. Right, therefore, says this one who is the risen Christ. The things which you have seen, if you're taking notes, that's the first Part of this outline, the things, write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. You may be interested that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Daniel, I think it's 2.28, this phrase, after these things, has to do with latter times. There's a connection there. So it's the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things, which can be in a uh, reference to the things in the last days. So you could say it's apocalyptic, figurative, and eschatological is one way to say it. Or simply put, what he has seen, the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. The things which are the true state of events, especially but not exclusively regarding the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And what will take place after these things, the future of the world, which begins in chapter 4, running through, really, the rest of the book. And finally, verse 20. As for the mystery, that word is mysterion in Greek, a sacred secret, he, uh, once hidden, now revealed, of the seven stars, you might be wondering, who are they? We get the answer. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He keeps us bright, and there's these angels. Now, uh, 
as we conclude, there's a lot of different views on who the angels of these churches are. And here's the thing. Each of the churches is introduced this way. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. The word angel in Greek is angelos. The city of angels is los angelus. And that is the Greek word coming from the Greek word angelos. So Los Angeles is the city of angels. The Greek word translated angel or messenger is angelos. That's what it means. It means messenger. So some people say these are literally angels. Some people say these are the pastors or elders of the churches. Some people say it's the essential spirit of each of these churches, like the characteristics of the churches. Uh, some people say it may reflect, the. does each church have a guardian angel? Well, here we would definitely need more than one. Don't you think? <laughs> I'm hoping there's like 500 just for this church, right? But why would John be told to write to angels of the churches from God to John back to angels seems a bit bizarre. It would seem there's a better communication system in heaven. I mean, I don't think God would say, uh, Michael, I want you to write a letter to Gabriel. <laughs> it's like, Lord, you talk, don't you talk to him every day? So it seems strange that they're literal angels. So that's why the best case seems to be that they're the leading pastors of the church. However, and I'll close with this. Go to two scriptures and we're done. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. Let me show you just a few things about this idea of angels' involvement in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10 says, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. What's it say? Because of the angels. Some versions say the Dodgers there, but I'm just kidding. They, they, they really don't. They really don't. Strike that from the record. Because of the angels. A woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And finally, <laughs> Ephesians, all Dodger fans said amen. Ephesians 3, look at verse 9. Ephesians 3, 9. He's talking about the great mystery of the church and he says these words. He says, I've been called, Ephesians 3, 8, to preach the to the Gentiles, the infallible, infallible riches of Christ. And to bring to light, Ephesians 3, 9, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. Where? In the heavenly places. When we pray in the morning before church begins, I often pray, Lord, surround this place with your angels. Is that biblical? I think so. I think angels are involved in the church more than you and I might think. In fact, they seem to be somehow watching our worship and somehow, according to Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, learning more and more about God and angels do seem to learn. They're not omniscient. Learning more and more about God's manifold grace through the church. How so? I think as the church goes through its ups and downs and the angels watch God's love and grace in our lives, they learn more about the grace of God through you and me. Some of you are teaching the angels a lot about grace. <laughs> They're like, wow, just one day watching that dude. Whew, God is a God of grace. That's when they're watching me. <laughs> Amen. So we'll get into the address, uh, who this is. But I, I do think it's the lead, probably the leader of each church. But, but this revelation of Jesus Christ, I hope it just thrills your heart. I hope it encourages your soul. I hope you can see that he, he does repair broken wicks and refill cups with oil, and he lights the fire again. And he's glorious and powerful, and he can do it, and he's going to see you to the finish line. Amen. That's the message.
I think of Revelation 1. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are, I'm grateful for the folks that have come out for this Revelation study. It's a deep study, but it's good, Lord. And we're so grateful to be part of it. And we pray that you'll take us all the way through this book and show us glorious things from your word that will encourage and even thrill our hearts, that will uh, increase our faith, that will anchor our souls to Jesus more firmly and give us great confidence that whatever we go through, the Alpha and the Omega has got us to the very end. We love you, Lord. I pray your blessing upon this group. I pray for those who may not know you yet or those who have been sliding away a bit to get back to close fellowship with you. I think that's part of the reason for this book, Lord. And I I ask your blessing on each precious soul here tonight. Give them what they need. Touch them in those areas where they need a touch, Lord. Strengthen their faith in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand?